Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to a special edition of Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Lurie, your host. I'm so excited to do this episode. It's been in the works for a while. And what I wanted to do was an episode where a series of different people explained their potential and favorite tweaks slash solutions to the problems that have faced the league in terms of players entering the league and also the playoffs. So I wanted to bring on a different panel of people to each talk about their own solutions. And I'm really excited with both who I got and also with the results. So we have Zach Harper of CBS Sports, Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders, Arturo Galetti of Boxcore Geeks, Jonathan Charks of Real GM, and Ethan Sherwood Strauss of ESPN. And also, at the end, I'll provide my own take on both of the topics. But we're going to start with Zach Harper. Zach is somebody who I've wanted to have on the show for a while. I'm a huge fan of his work. He does the I Am Basketball blog for CBS Sports. He also does the I Am Basketball podcast, which is a great listen. I enjoy listening to it so much. He also does a wolfamongwolves.com, which I enjoy as well. It's a good insight, more specifically, on the Timberwolves, where he is based right now. I really enjoyed the conversation with him, and hope you enjoy it too. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I love fixing the lottery. Yeah, so let's start with what your favorite proposal to fix the lottery would be. I think a lot of this stuff is cool, like, it's not gimmicky, but like the, the lottery wheel and, and stuff like that. Like, I think it's cool, but I, I just think the simplest form is not overreacting to what happened in 1993, 1993-94 when the Magic received back-to-back first-round picks just by pure coincidence. We had an unweighted lottery years ago, and that is the easiest way to still ensure that the teams that miss the playoffs get the best chance at the talent coming into the league. And at the same time, it takes away tanking because it doesn't matter if you're the worst team or if you're the 14th worst team. If it's an unweighted lottery, you know, just because a team might get back-to-back picks and be one of, you know, be just on the outside of the playoffs, that doesn't, that shouldn't deter anybody. And so I just don't understand why the league panicked, made it a weighted lottery, and and it sets up a reward for being worse than other teams. And also, in some ways, unweighted lottery would resolve the problem in terms of pick protection, and if you want to call that tanking, which I actually think is the more egregious form of, if we want to call it tanking, because that really affects competitive balance. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, we saw it with the Warriors when they owed the Jazz a pick. A couple of years ago, when it ended up being the Harrison Barnes pick. I mean, that Warriors team put the ball in the hands of Charles Jenkins at the end of the year. And no offense to Charles Jenkins, he's a much better basketball player than I am, but 
come on, that, you're not trying to win games when you do that, and you're not even developing him because he was never a part of their long-term plans, as we saw by the fact that he's not on the team anymore. And so I just think that you take away or limit pick you know, lottery protection. I don't think you should have it to where you can have six years of lottery protection or four years of lottery protection or whatever protection on the pick. Make it a two-year deal with protection, and maybe we see more trades. Maybe we see better competition, fewer teams trying to lose at the end of the year to make sure they get their pick. I think it's a great point about lottery protection is that if it's unweighted, and maybe you restrict what you can protect, maybe consecutive picks, or, or I don't know how you would, you would limit that, that protection, but if you get, got rid of those, wouldn't that just take away a lot of the tanking problems? It would, especially because basically once you're in that non-playoff grouping under this system, there would really be no incentive to get particularly worse except for the idea that you could evaluate your players. But there's, I think there's a fundamental difference in some circumstances, though not all of them, between setting up your roster so that you're probably going to lose and just playing your young guys. I mean, I think that in some ways that's the difference between Utah and Philadelphia. Absolutely, and you could even you can say the difference between Philadelphia and Phoenix going into this year. I think the majority of us thought that they were going to be horrendous. I certainly, I mean, I picked the, the Sixers to win nine games this year. That's how bad I thought they were going to be. I thought the, I think I had the Suns for like 20 wins, something like that, but still really bad. And both teams kind of cleared the books, looked to put out their young players with a new coach and see what they had moving forward with new GMs, you know, pretty much new everything. And, one of those teams has struggled, although they've been better than expected with the Sixers, but they're still able to evaluate their talent and prepare for the future. And sure, they're tanking in a way. I mean, no, they're definitely tanking, but they're also competitively tanking, which is probably the best of both worlds if you do have a system that promotes tanking, which this one does. And, and the Suns, on the other hand, you know, I don't think they expected to be a playoff team this year, but all of a sudden they were almost too good. They were too good for their rebuilding effort. So what they've done is given their players a chance to grow, a chance to play, a chance to prove what they're worth, a chance to prove how they fit with Jeff Hornacek and what he wants to do. And at the same time, they've enjoyed success out of it. So I think you would see more situations like that of kind of clearing the deck to see what you have with an upcoming season. And maybe you might see more teams end up in that Phoenix mold than, than the Sixers. So that's an excellent point. Would you think that there is a disadvantage to, because I guess for competitive balance reasons, to having it be a full unweighted lottery as opposed to just the non-playoff teams? That one I'm a little sketchier about. I think there should be, I don't know that we should be promoting the playoff teams to get better. Oh, actually, I don't know. Well, you just brought up a good question because now I'm thinking, why wouldn't we want that? I guess the <laughs> danger is that the NBA champs, win the lottery, bring in a great player, and then you have absolute dominance. But I don't have a problem with dominance. I don't have a problem with elitism in the NBA. I think it's a good thing. It's one of the things I appreciate about the NBA is the fact that you know the champion's going to be legit every year. There, there have been years in baseball and years in, in football where you just think, oh, that team got hot. The, the system is kind of set up for a team to get hot. There's all this chaos you don't really know. And the NBA is much more predictable, which I like. I like knowing that the champion of that year – is a legitimate champion and didn't just get hot. And so I think that, you know, maybe that helps promote that a little bit. I'd still keep it to the non-playoff teams having the unweighted lottery and being the only ones eligible for winning a top three spot. But also, what about the idea of having a lottery for all 14 spots, an unweighted lottery for all 14 spots? Like, would that be too crazy? Or should we only be drafting for the, the top three lottery positions? I'm a firm supporter of if you're going to do lottery, do lottery for everything. 
Okay. It's I, I think that it makes I think that it makes the most sense and once you get down there, then you're really to me, it's all about incentives. I have a I have a degree in economics, and so what do you think about it? Is when you don't do a full lottery, then you're still giving stronger incentives for teams to do badly. Yeah. Because unless you're doing it unweighted, because then basically what you're doing is if you're saying, okay, well, you have an equal chance of getting the first pick, but if you're really bad, you get the fifth pick. There are going to be some front offices because obviously this doesn't come from the players. I don't think. In except for very narrow circumstances, I don't think the players are engaged in tanking. Right. But so you get into these circumstances where if you give them any incentive that being worse helps them, I think that there will be sub teams in certain circumstances that will jump on that. And I would ideally try to avoid that when possible, while also not completely making a system that's crazy in that sense. But yeah, I, I, I that's a concern that I have and. While I do think it would heavily reduce it, and I think that one of the really nice things about about going to a system like what you proposed is that it would reduce the incentives enough to change it, but I think equalizing it over the whole lottery would be the most fair. Yeah, that would definitely be the most fair. I mean, for me, it's like, what was the problem with what happened with the Magic 93-94, or 92-93, whatever the draft years were, that they got Shaq and Penny? Did that end up being bad for the league? Like, I don't, I don't understand what the problem is if, if we have an unweighted system in which a team gets lucky enough to, no matter where they finished out of the playoffs, they got back-to-back number one picks, because that ended up being a very entertaining finals. It was short finals in 95, but it was entertaining. And that Shaq-Penny duo was one of the most marketable things in the league for a couple of years. I mean... That, there was nothing wrong with what happened there. It's just some owner said, hey, I didn't get the number one pick. That's not fair. And then the other ones went, yeah, we didn't get it either. That's not fair. And then all of a sudden you had you know, the, this change. And I'm always for simple solutions to things. Like I don't, think need, I don't think a lot of things need to be overly complicated. The thing is, all right, we have, a, we have a lottery system that's weighted and it promotes tanking. Well, how do we fix that? Why, why don't you just unweight it to where it's a fair deal across the entire lottery? I mean, it just seems so simple. It almost seems too simple to work. It is, and I think that what happened is the greatest downside risk, if you want to call it that, of the unweighted system presented itself. And so they went, oh, the worst case scenario, which is incredibly unlikely, happened. We need to change it. And it, in a way, it kind of reminds me of how the CBA was changed after the Miami 3 to a system that actually, in many ways, is less advantageous for the same teams that were freaking out. It's the idea of, we want change but not envisioning the, what the whole change is going to look like and then getting a little bit burned by it. Yeah, and I've just, I mean, this is always going to be people trying to keep their jobs rather than be better at their jobs, but if you're good at what you do and what you do is scouting talent, it doesn't matter where you pick, right? I mean, there are certain tiers and drop-offs where if there's just not an all-star in the first, you know, after the first five picks and you end up with a sixth pick, then you are a little screwed in that respect. But if you're good at your job, you're going to find an impact player who can at least contribute. And I think that's kind of where it went through the the entire system of this just made our job harder, so we don't want to do it. And I think that the inverse is actually, as true as that is, I think the inverse is actually even more relevant, which is that even if you have good options available, there will be teams that screw that up. And I think we've seen that pretty well with the Cleveland Cavaliers the last couple of years, that having the great, if you want to call it draft assets, if you want to call it, you know, just resources – does not guarantee anything. And 
I think that there's something to be said about, you know, so that if you, even if you tank, which I'm not saying the Cavs did, but even if you do that, that doesn't guarantee anything, which you can use as an argument against something that balances it more, but I don't think it does that. I think that it just shows that the advantages aren't necessarily advantages, but teams are still changing their behavior even with that truth. So you want to curb that if you can. Yeah, and I've always believed that ownership and management manage so, or matter so much more than necessarily luck and market. For, what, almost 15 years, the Warriors were in the lottery every year, right? And they sucked because they couldn't draft all that well to, to put together a good team. Like, their management sucked, and their ownership sucked. And then they got a new ownership, a new management, and now they're, you know, one of the darlings of the league. You look at the Minnesota Timberwolves, they have been in the lottery for the last 10 years, and they've sucked because they don't draft well. They've drafted a couple of good players here and there or, or draft trades that have made it look good. But for the most part, they've had iffy ownership who puts incompetent people and gives them job security. And you see that, you, you know, you kind of see the same thing with Cleveland of iffy ownership with a relatively incompetent drafter who is just putting together, you know, guys who are okay but not great, and there's no real plan. And so I just think that, I think that if you just had 30 teams with 30 good managements, then none of this would be a problem. Now, I know that, I don't know, that's a little too utopia, you know, too much of a utopia for NBA standards, but I, I just think, I don't think like being bad at your job should be forgiven. I agree completely. Do you have any preferences or tweaks that you would make to the playoff system? No, I love the playoff system the way it is. You know, there are going to be years like this where 14 teams in the West, you know, 12 teams in the West probably deserve a playoff spot over the last six in the East. But for the most part, I don't, I don't like the idea of just going to the top 16 teams in the, in the league. I think that screws up the balance of it. I think, you know, I think divisions are stupid, but I think conferences matter for logistical scheduling and stuff like that. Having, I like knowing, like, for example, I like knowing that we are going to get a Heat Pacers Eastern Conference Finals this year. Now, it would be cool if they had challengers in that, you know, on that road, but we know that barring a catastrophic event for both teams that these two teams are going to going to match up and that that matchup excites me and if we ended up drafting the top 16 you know into a tournament format and we didn't get that I mean maybe you would get heat pacers for the NBA finals and that would be really cool but knowing that we we will get certain matchups every year excites me and I like I kind of like that that tradition of it even if it's maybe a little dumb in some years I like the tradition of it. And that's definitely a rationale that's completely supportable. I think that there's an interesting dynamic in terms of teams kind of knowing who to build around as well. You know, that they're that the Pacers knew that they're going to face Miami if they're good enough. You know, both teams make it. And yeah, sure, an injury can happen and they can fall by the wayside like that year that the Celtics didn't make it to face the Heat. Yeah. But they're doing that. Do you like the idea of having all the series be seven games, or would you be intrigued by making the first round a best of five? I, I, mi- like I it used to Yeah, be? I actually miss the best of five first round. I get that it's more revenue, and I get that it's simply just more revenue. I don't know that it's better basketball, but there was an element of, oh, maybe this team could upset. Now, we didn't get that many upsets in the round of five, but just a, a best of five, would, you'd still have the legitimacy of everything, but you would have a little bit more drama. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the drama is interesting, and I've I've been thinking about it in the context of would it be possible or interesting to shift around the home game format? What I was thinking about would be if you would have the first game, let's say you have a one seed and eight, just to make it easier. 
if you had the one seed host the first game, and then you had two, three at the yeah, other place, and then four and five at the home team, so then basically they know they're going to have a clinching game. Yeah, actually, I like that idea a lot. I wouldn't mind mixing up the order of the home games as long as we kept you know home court advantage, home court advantage. But I think that that would be a cool little wrinkle to it just because maybe then you would add a little bit more excitement. You talked about divisions and all that. Would you theoretically eliminate divisions? Would that be like a small tweak that you would support in terms of the playoffs? Yeah, I think I think divisions are so stupid at this point. Going into the target center for every home game and looking up and seeing 2003, 2004, whatever division they were in, champions, I, I look at it and I just think, okay, the Wolves haven't had success. So that's like one of the few banners they can raise, but that's just so small time that I kind of think that's embarrassing. Whereas I just think you don't have to hang a banner just to have a banner. You can have retired numbers and all that, but it just seems so, it seems so weird to say, like, hey, I'm happy the Raptors won the Atlantic Division this year. Are you happy? Like, what does that provide? I, don't, I just don't see any benefit to having division winners, and I think it screws up the playoff seeding. Yeah, exactly, and the playoff seeding to me is the, bigger, is the bigger part of it, is that if the goal is to kind of reward teams for having a good regular season, then rewarding a team who had a worse regular season because they have worse surrounding opponents isn't necessarily a good thing, especially when you're factoring in degree of difficulty. If you're winning a division with a worse record, then let's say that would put you at the fifth seed of your conference. Then that means that not only did you have a worse record than those other teams, but you did it against inferior competition. Exactly. So why are they getting rewarded kind of doubly for something that was completely out of their hands? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that just the point of saying, oh, they're a four seed, but they don't have home court advantage against a five seed who has better record, like, there's no point to that. It just ma- it makes it complicated for no reason. Yeah, and it leads to those circumstances where fans, I would say in particular, are more notable because people like you and I are into this too deeply to kind of make the mistakes more regularly. If they're like, hey, we're the four seed, and then they get, in a way, you could say blindsided by the fact that they're not hosting a series despite being the higher seed. It's just such a strange system. I'm just not a fan of making things unnecessarily complicated. And, and like, what? I just what's the point? Like, okay, you. I guess it's to sell merchandise. Like, we won the division this year by a hat. And you can still do that. You just They should get a spot in the playoffs. I think that's fair. I think that you should get a spot in the 8 or in the 16, depending on what your system is. But that's it. And you can get a hat. You can still get a hat. They can still exist, I guess, though if you're going to... Basically, to me, the argument of completely abolishing them would come with if you're going to adjust the schedules in a way that they're irrelevant. Because right now they're relevant. Yeah. So that you might as well give out the hats. But if you're going to change the system, and there are lots of different ideas out there of how to do this, to something where your division didn't matter or mattered a lot less than it does now, then you could start to make that change. Absolutely. I think that, all right, you have a schedule of you play the other conference two times a year. So that's 30 games right there. You're left with 52 games for 14 opponents. That's what, like, almost four a game. You just weight it to where it's almost like a a cyclical thing of you play this team four times, you play this team four times, you play this team three times, and then the next year they get a fourth game and you subtract a third game from someone. I just think there's a a way schedule-wise to where you you can balance it out to where just having conferences works out for you. And you could also do that by just having less games, which yes, is I'm, which is controversial now, but it seems like it's eventually going to be less controversial. And it's only controversial because the owners don't want to lose revenue. Yeah, well, the the owners lose revenue, and then the players lose game checks. Uh, so That's I mean, true. both sides don't, both sides aren't going to go for that. But I think if you can find a way to make up the revenue, I don't know, by selling 
ads on jerseys or something. You know, I'm not an extremist like some people where they're like, oh, we need 60 games. We need 48 games. I say shave off 10 games, make this a 72-game season. I think that eliminates enough back-to-backs to where you have you know, just more rest for the players, maybe fewer injuries because of it, and, and it's a little bit more of an exciting season. Agreed. I would focus more on eliminating back-to-backs and maybe even tightening up the playoff schedule a little bit. I think that that's another way to do it is if you could add another two weeks to the regular – let's say you cut five or so games from the regular season, you you add two weeks or so, so that eliminates back-to-backs. I think that creates an overall system that works as well. I mean, I would like it to be less games than that, but I think that would be a more effective compromise. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think that just tightening up the schedule in general – while being able to eliminate back-to-backs would would solve a lot of issues. Are there any other ideas on either the playoffs or the draft that you think are worth considering or interesting enough to discuss here? Uh, I think I think for the most part we've got a good system. It doesn't need a major overhaul. It just needs small tweaks. Like the, to me, this is still the most exciting game in the world in terms of action on the court. And I think that the league is in a very good place, both in how they promote the league and the product on the court. And I think that you just you make a couple of tweaks here and there, and and you have you're never going to generate the money that the NFL does because the NFL has gambling on its side, and gambling with football is just much more prominent than gambling with with basketball. But I don't know. I think you can easily surpass baseball and and be quote unquote the top league in the world. And I think that the international influence of basketball also is important to that, is that not only now is it a sport that a lot of international people play in the NBA, but it's a sport that is watched and played outside of North America, which I think will continue to be a huge advantage because it makes the league better. And it also, if we can get to the point kind of paralleling in reverse, what the Premier League and the Champions League and all that do here is if we can start to get ACB games for those who are really interested in things like that here and EuroLeague more accessible, I think that could grow the game as well to kind of so people could see how the game looks different in different places around the world. Absolutely. Like, cross-pollination around the world and hopefully we get to a point where there is an India league there is a Chinese league there is a an African league they're worthy of not the talent necessarily but the competition of of the Euro league and the NBA right now and maybe we get a South American league you know find a way to get to a point where you have this promotion from leagues all around the world that are worthy of of being in the same sentence as each other and you know that will be the ultimate global promotion. The remarkable step that I was thinking on those notes is, I know you and I both think about the draft a fair amount, is that I really like this draft class and that there might not be any players that I think are definite Team USA guys in the future, but there are so many guys that are going to be great international players for other countries in this draft class, and I'm very intrigued by that. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's kind of a cool thing that we've seen is like, all right, he was a bust. Well, he's not a bust, but he's just a disappointment in his first year, but Anthony Bennett was the number one pick as you know a Canadian player, and we're going to probably get another Canadian player, number one with Andrew Wiggins. And fun to see how Lithuania came up over the last 20 years, how, you know, you had the golden age with the Argentinian teams. You're seeing a kind of a boom with Canadian teams with the influence from America. Like it's fun to see these other countries just rise up in this basketball sense. And I'm really hopeful that we're going to see an African team get into that, maybe not into the metal mix yet. I think it's going to take a little bit for that, but to get into that discussion, to maybe make make it into the higher rounds in the Olympics. And it might be Cameroon with Embiid. It's going to be really exciting, I think, to me, for the NBA to show, especially because they've done a lot of effort in terms of basketball without borders and things like that to grow the game in Africa. 
And I think that would be an amazing development for the sport to get them relevant in the international scene. Absolutely. Completely agree. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that takes a lot of time. Like basketball without borders, I think, is what, 10, 12, 15 years old, something like that. But that's something that takes a couple of decades to get it instilled and ingrained into the culture of making this more of a regular thing. And, you know, maybe maybe 20 years from now, we'll be talking on a podcast about, wow, look at how the entire world has become like this force for basketball rather than just being USA dominated. That's an excellent point. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. Love to have you on anytime. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again to Zach Harper for coming on. You can read him on CBS Sports, Ion Basketball blog. You can listen to the Ion Basketball podcast. And you can follow him on Twitter, at TalkHoops. That's T-A-L-K-H-O-O-P-S. Next up, we have Nate Duncan, who writes for Basketball Insiders. And we talk for about 20 minutes. Appreciate Nate coming on to give his idea on how to fix the draft. Hey, good to be here, Danny. So I was hoping that you could walk listeners through the way that you propose to fix the whole draft process. So I came up with this idea about two years ago when I just had my own little piddling uh, blogspot site. I call it the bid draft. Basically, the goal was to try to find a way in which the original intent of the draft could be preserved, which is helping bad teams get good and have some hope, while also preventing tanking from occurring by divorcing the incentive to lose games from your eventual draft position. And so the basic format is that you use salary cap space to bid on a draft slot. So you use that space on a draft slot. How do you determine which team wins that process? Well, whoever bids the most, essentially. I mean, so the way it would work is teams that are willing to bid above the salary cap amount for the first pick in the draft, which would be $4.4 million in 2014, they are allowed to basically jump ahead of the team that would normally have the number one pick in the draft. So let's say it's 2012 and you've got max cap room and you think that Anthony Davis is going to be an amazing draft pick. Well, whoever has the worst record that year, you can participate in the bid draft and basically buy the number one pick with your salary cap space. So whoever bids the most ends up getting the number one pick, essentially. And each pick is bid on individually, so there would be one round where everyone bids for the first pick, and then whoever bids the most gets it. Then the second pick, same thing, whoever bids the most gets it. And you keep going until no teams are willing to bid $4.4 million or whatever the rookie scale amount is for the number one pick that year once you get to the point where no one is willing to bid more than that then it ends and then whatever the team with the worst record that didn't already bid on the pick would then select would every team be eligible to be a part of the process or would there be certain teams that'd be excluded well i think in large part you know sort of the thrust of your question is well what if really good teams were able to do this you know wouldn't that just keep the haves with great draft picks and make things worse for the have-nots, I think generally that wouldn't be the case because most teams with cap room are not going to be the great teams in the league. Usually those teams will be over the cap and even into the tax because they're trying to add as much talent as possible for a championship run rather than necessarily valuing flexibility. 
However, if there were the rare situation, like let's say, for example, this year, the Heat make it to the conference finals and they could possibly have max cap room this offseason, depending on what happens with the options for LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. So teams that made the conference finals, we would just make them ineligible to participate in the bid draft. That would make sure that there weren't any crazy L.A. Lakers drafting James Worthy number one in 1982 type of scenarios. And you could even have a circumstance with that, with this system, where with the bid draft, you can make it so that those teams are ineligible from one selection of picks, but then let's say they can move up to 10 if they wanted, but they can't move to one. Yeah, that is a good point. That wasn't something that was in my initial proposal, but it's certainly something that you could consider once you get to where it's not going to be presumably a franchise-changing player. They have some cap space, then maybe you allow them to participate, but that's you know, that's sort of tinkering around at, at, at the margins. One clarifying question that I had was, you have these bids and you have this amount of money that you're saying comes from cap space. How does that affect how much rookies get paid or their cap number? Well, so what, their cap number and how much they get paid would be different. The cap number would be the amount that was bid. So if you're if it's 2012 and you bid the maximum salary on Anthony Davis, then that's his cap number for at least the two years that he's guaranteed because rookies would still have a two-year guaranteed contract with a third and fourth year team option. So that would be his cap number. However, he would only get paid the $4.4 million rookie scale amount. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The biggest reason is veterans would never, ever go for this plan if more money were to be distributed back to the rookies. When the rookie scale was first implemented in 1995, that was one of the big selling points was now the veterans are going to get more money. The other big selling point of the rookie scale that we don't want to lose is that rookies are still willing to work now if they're not getting astronomical numbers. When you had rookies starting to get paid crazy amounts, like the last year before the rookie scale, Glenn Robinson got a 10-year, $68 million contract. And it was getting to the point where at least the perception was that rookies were not working that hard because they were getting paid too much too soon. And then that also was an issue with team chemistry as well, where you had this hot chat rookie coming in and kind of rocking the boat with these established veterans. That makes complete sense. So beyond the ones that we've already discussed, what are any other advantages that you can think of this system compared to either the status quo or other things that you've heard about? Well, I mean, I, I, the reason I like it, as I said, is because you're not taking away hope. I mean, things like the wheel that's sort of been discussed quite a bit in NBA circles of late, I think that's a bad idea because you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Okay, you're going to eliminate tanking. That's great. But you're going to create a much bigger problem, which is having no hope in some of the uh, NBA backwaters. You know, how are you going to feel if you're a Sacramento fan and you're totally capped out, and the next three years guaranteed to be picking below five. You know, that is much, much worse for the league than the allegations of tanking. And I think this would eliminate any real incentive to intentionally lose games anyway, while still preserving that hope in these moribund franchises. I mean, I, I think the only real downside would be if you have a real bad team and they also are, are capped out, then they're going to get jumped by all these teams that have cap room. But in some respects, that's actually a positive because now you're not rewarding losing and also being a terribly managed team with no cap space. 
And the last advantage is that it's going to give bad teams a way to spend their money a little more efficiently. If you're a bad team with cap space now, a lot of times you don't really have much hope of getting an upper tier free agent and or you have to overpay for sort of middling guys like Al Jefferson just to sort of reach respectability. And now if you can't get guys at a decent value, you can say, all right, we're just going to invest more money into the draft. And if you want to think about from an, a more egalitarian perspective, I one of the things that I really like about your proposal is that in a way that parallels those of us who advocate fantasy football auction drafts is that other than some narrow exceptions, everybody gets a chance if they manage things right to get the high level players, but they have to do things right in order to do it. It's not luck. It's a combination of kind of good fortune in some ways, but also maintaining a good fiscal house. And that creates a really nice incentive structure and also in some ways gives ownership an out if they're going to spend less long-term money, which for some owners would be a huge positive for them. Yeah, I, I think that's true in some ways, but then in other ways, there's less of an excuse because now you have more outlets to spend your money in ways that are actually efficient. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a team like the Jazz this year, you're, it's very defensible to say, all right, we're going to kind of punt this year, let our young players grow, and we're going to take on $24 million of Andres Biedrins and Rush and Richard Jefferson and get a couple of draft picks. Now, the fan base might justifiably be pretty upset with that because you could have used that cap space on getting a draft pick instead. So in some ways, it creates more of an incentive for owners to compete as well. Yeah, it does balance both those, and that leads me into another clarifying question, which is how would draft pick trades and things of that nature work in your system? Well, that's one thing that would require some more thought. My preliminary thought is that they would just work as normal, but you they would just have to be worth less because you would know that you're probably pretty likely to get jumped most years. So they just it wouldn't be as easy to make trades with draft picks and have them be worth a lot. So that, I mean, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But I think ultimately that's, that's the only solution that I've come up with so far. But hit me up on Twitter at NateDuncanNBA if you have a, a, a better way of doing this. And also the interesting part of it is that pick protection would change a lot. But a lot of people, including myself, think that pick protection should change a lot. So that's not really a negative in that sense that, there, there are all these crazy, specific, perverse incentives for teams, and the classic example of that for me are the Golden State Warriors when they tanked to get Harrison Barnes. The Blazers did it last year to retain their own pick, and you've seen it all over the place. And because of the idea that picks could shift around, I think teams would be much more hesitant to accept more than give those kind of protections. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and whether protected picks should be allowed is, you know, an, another great conversation. And talking about protected picks, I mean, we to be fair, we should talk about what some of the disadvantages of the system are. And I think one of them is, this is a pretty big change, and is tanking, intentionally losing games to better your draft position, is that really that big of a problem that it requires this radical of a system to be implemented? That's a good point, and but I think at the same point, it's the argument for it, and it's funny that I'm making the argument for it, is that... You like, you like what it, I did there? Socratic method. Yeah, 
is that it opens it up. It doesn't necessarily, it, it's a dramatic change, but it's not a dramatic change that really affects the financial status quo in terms of the players or the teams. It just affects the order and affects the way that teams choose to spend their money. But as you said, the difference between a guy's cap number and a guy's actual salary, assuming that money gets distributed in other ways, it's a shock to the system, but it's not as big a shock to the system as some other proposals, including some of the ones that I support. And I think that the biggest change in terms of that would actually probably be the timing, because it would be very difficult and convoluted to figure out when in relation to, let's say, the moratorium, you would want to put this bid draft and also how it coincides with the actual drafting of players. Well, one, one thing we should say, actually, that you touched on before we address that point is that what, what happens to the money, I don't think I said this yet, the extra money that goes to, say, Anthony Davis's cap number, that actually gets distributed among any veterans who are on the team. So, you know, the point of that is to placate the veterans and let them, you know, hopefully agree to this because they're actually going to get paid more and maybe people would even want to be on a team with a high-priced rookie because now you're getting paid more. But on the other hand, if you're going to get people to agree, I have some problems getting veterans to agree because we've seen in the most recent labor negotiations that not only do NBA players care about how much money they're making, but they care about their freedom. And the so-called system issues were a big part of the negotiations in the last CBA. And if owners are now going to be hoarding their cap space to bid on unproven rookies, well, that means that the demand for veteran free agents is going to go down. And that's something that may not sit well with a lot of people in the union. That makes sense. And it, it's good to inject a little realism into the conversation, because as much as I like the idea of thinking about things in a vacuum, it's also productive to think about them in the context of what can and should actually happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the question I have for you, Doug, is do you think that tanking is really that big of a deal ultimately, or are we just sort of intellectually enjoying ourselves by discussing it? There's not a big enough problem that it really requires such a radical solution, either this one or any of the others, even more radical ones that are being talked about. I think that it is, and there are a couple reasons why. One, I have a background, which some people may know, in the ticket business, and what that has a really big impact because you see these teams that are able to justify basically giving away a whole season, and that, as a season ticket holder, would be absolutely devastating. And with the way that most teams structure it, it gets hard to get back in. And so if a team is actively not trying to win, let's say the Philadelphia 76ers this year, or even Utah, though I think Utah had more hope in that sense, that's a problem. And also I think it's an issue for competitive balance and that you're getting into the season and you're getting into those last games. And if you're facing one of, let's say, six to eight teams, then you know that they're not trying. And so that's not only bad in terms of it's not balanced in terms of the teams, but it's also not good for the fans of home teams where those quote-unquote tanking teams are visiting. And so you get these games that aren't as satisfying and don't grow the brand of the NBA. So I think that the solutions are a little bit drastic in a lot of circumstances, but I also think that the problem is drastic. And I think more importantly than that, it can be fixed. It's not this flaw, structural flaw that has to be a part of the game. It is something that can be remedied and adjusted in, in various ways and 
reduced to the point where it won't be as big of a factor. So I'm actually going to disagree with you on this. I think it's really that just straight tanking. I mean, I think, first of all, we have to distinguish between just straight tanking over the course of an entire year to get the best draft pick and tanking at the end of the year to avoid losing your protected pick that you already traded away. I think the latter is a real problem, and it is something that needs to be addressed. But that's not something that requires anywhere near as radical of a solution as what we're talking about. And, you know, this isn't to, uh, you know, sort of crap on my own proposal. I think if there is a change that is going to be made, I happen to like my proposal the best. But I'm still not sure that it needs to be made because I don't think teams are really intentionally losing games and players are intentionally losing games. I think that even without the lure of a draft pick, teams like the Suns or the Jazz and maybe maybe not so much the Sixers. The Sixers are probably the only team that really has sort of skirted the edge at this point of going a little bit too far and losing games to the point where you know, they really just didn't even fill out their roster at the start of the year, basically, and are way below the salary floor. But aside from that, I don't think that there are any teams that are really have been too bad about this. And I don't think there are that many examples in past years either. And frankly, I think it's fine to get younger and cheaper and see what you have in your young players. You have to evaluate these guys at some point. And if you're going to take a step back, I mean, they're Teams in other sports who, where they aren't taking pursue similar strategies, and that's because they're smart strategies to see what you have in your young players. It doesn't do you any good to let play Richard Jefferson as much as possible so we can win three more games this year. You want to find out what Alec Burks can do. Except that Ty Corbin played Richard Jefferson so many minutes at the beginning of the season, but that's for that's for different reasons. So I and I guess I you know to to finish up with what I was saying about some of the, the disadvantages that we have to be honest about. You know we talked about how some of the deadlines ha- might have to change. You might have to make it like the NFL and have free agency occur before the draft so that teams would know what kind of cap space they had before they did the bid draft. I think the bid draft would have to occur at least as early as the lottery does this year, so you would have enough time to prepare beforehand. A couple of other downsides is that teams would be bidding a lot on unproven rookies, and they could be stuck with bad cap numbers if they didn't pan out, whereas if you're bidding on veterans, you have, for most of them at least, an established track record of NBA success. And Also, building through the draft might not be as good of a strategy anymore because now you kind of have to pay, at least in cap number, what those players are worth. Draft picks are very cheap talent for what you're paying. And then finally, as we talked about, making trades with draft picks would be harder, and that might chill the trade market a little bit. And fans love trades. You know, all the basketball websites get the most traffic around the trade deadline or during the free agency or trading season in the summer. So chilling the trade market actually might be a downside as well. And those are all all valid concerns. Do you have any thoughts on how or if you would tweak the playoff system? Yeah, but tweak would probably be as far as I would go. Again, I think some of the more radical proposals that I've seen aren't necessary. I I think all I would do would be to institute a rule that if a team in a given conference would make the playoffs with an under 500 record, that if there is a team with an over 500 record in the other conference that is not making the playoffs, then they should get 
to take that team's spot. I think with this year, if you're going to have a 35-win team from the East and a 45-win team in the West, that's just completely unfair to that team that's in the West. So that it would make the playoffs better. That's probably what I would do. I mean, I certainly would not be against some of the proposals that are out there for a tournament to determine the seventh or eighth seed. That would be pretty cool too, I think. But that's not my idea. And maybe the other one isn't either. I think I came up with it, but it seems pretty obvious. So I bet someone said that before too. Well, for me, the idea behind doing a podcast like this is not to get necessarily an original idea. Some of the ideas that I support myself are original, some of them are not. It's the idea to have what, what you think are the best things out there because when people who've thought about this a lot, as both of us and everybody else who will be on this has, you get these ideas that have a lot of polish, at least intellectual polish, and those are the ones that are the most interesting in terms of figuring out exactly what's important, and even if none of those are, are the actual solution, I think they help clarify the discussion. I, I will say this, I am not for eliminating conferences. I think the idea of having rivalries within your conference in the playoffs is a very compelling one. Some of the great stories in NBA history, if you go to the 80s, first it was Boston and Philly and Milwaukee, knowing that they had to play each other every year and gearing up and, and for that matchup. Then it became Detroit trying to beat Boston then it became Chicago trying to beat Detroit. Then it became the Knicks trying to beat the Bulls. That knowledge that this team is your rival, the idea that you're going to have to go through this team and that the fans are anticipating that all year, I think that's great. If you were to sprinkle everyone about willy-nilly before the playoffs began, not having that anticipation throughout the year. I mean, think of how much right now we're looking forward to a Miami-Indiana series. A, they played last year, and it was a great series. And now, you know, it looks like they're on an inevitable collision course again, and the anticipation for that is going to be off the charts when it finally happens, and there's much more of a rivalry between those teams than if, you know, Miami were matching up against the Clippers or something in the would-have-been-the-Eastern Conference Finals. And I think the historic background actually matters in this because it gives this kind of structure to the league and expectations, though as somebody who grew up watching more Western Conference, there isn't as much allure of that as there is in the Eastern Conference because even the dynastic teams didn't have that same progression for various reasons. But it does also change the debate, or change the, not necessarily the debate, but change the building process if you know that you're going against a certain team or you have a reasonable expectation in the conference finals versus having to build against everybody. The Pacers are a team that actually is built pretty well against, compared to the Heat, and if they were building against everybody else, maybe they would have some things different, for better or for worse. Yeah, and I, 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 and I like that. I like the idea of thinking about Frank Vogel just locked in a cave with nothing but the glow of five HDTVs lighting his face as he's pouring over film, wondering how he's going to beat Miami's pick-and-roll defense this year. Like I, I love that. I love the idea of a team that lost to another team just becoming obsessed with them and pulling out all the stops to try and beat them the next year. And that and maybe that's just because as a Chicagoan, that's sort of the legend that I grew up with. And you know, I read the Jordan rules and heard how obsessed everyone on the Bulls was with beating Detroit. And then they finally did it in this amazing victory. And it's one of the great stories in NBA history. It's one of the, the big legends. And I think there are a lot of those stories to come that would be lost with an unconference format. 
Well, thank you so much for providing your insight. Loved having you on and hope to have you on in the future. Anytime, man. Thanks again to Nate Duncan for coming on. You can read him at basketballinsiders.com. And as he said on the podcast, you can follow him on Twitter at NateDuncanNBA. That's N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A. Next up is Arturo Galetti, who writes for BoxScoreGeeks.com. Our conversation runs for about 17 minutes. Thank you so much, Arturo, for coming on. Well, hey, Danny. Uh, it's nice to be on, although, I mean, I think I don't need a lot of excuses to talk about the draft. I always argue that if there's a draft article, I'm there to write it. I'm always very curious about it. I've always been fascinated by it, and I think it's partly because I'm a child of, of, of Cuban immigrants, and to me, like, having a socialist system in my capitalist society probably shocks me. And, and, and to explain that, you know, it's, it's really kind of, if you look at it, it the, the draft is a way to, for, for all these teams to get indentured servants at lower rates. Right, as opposed to kind of going to a free market and actually doing. And if you look at the roots of this, this is all because the owners didn't want to play the players, right? So that this is where the onus comes into the draft. And you know, I think you were asking me a question before we got on here about you know whether the end goal of the draft was to make uh, all teams competitive. And I think actually no. I think what we're trying to do, right, is what we're trying to do is provide a system for the league to get these new players in and get in the league in such a way that it doesn't incentivize losing. Right. So, you know, again, what with the argument I'll make, right? So I think right now the way it's set up, you know, there is a motive, or at least, you know, we can argue about whether it's a true motive or not, but you do get better draft position or better or the, a better draft chance or better probability of getting a high draft pick if you lose more games. So there's, there's, a, there's a decision point for every season where, you know, if you're not a good team, you can say, look, I'm just not going to try as hard and I'm going to have a better shot at getting a better player next year. And I think the, the problem with that is then it makes for terrible basketball. If you're the league and you're the NBA, then that means you're going to have some nights where, you know, you've got the Bucks playing the Magic. And, and it's going to be a terrible night of basketball, right? Because these both these teams don't really have an incentive to win, and they're not going to put out a good product. So, again, I think the league, what the league is looking for, or like what we should be looking for is a way to make it so that, yeah, you know, you have a chance at getting some talent on your team and improving your team to, to get it more balanced. But at the end of the day, what we want is – to take away the incentive to lose, right? That's definitely a fair argument. Anything that we do, right, is going to be somewhat controversial, I think. And, you know, we can always say, look, the, the easiest argument is to go to an open market, treat it like the European uh, soccer leagues do, and just basically have players negotiate directly with the teams. Although, in that scenario, then the, the big market teams would have an advantage over the small market teams, you know, up to a point, because given that we have a hard cap, then it becomes kind of an interesting kind of ballgame. I think the, the bigger problem is, like, the teams are kind of protecting themselves because if we went to the open kind of non-fixed salaries, we might, we might wind up with a situation like we used to have where, like, the rookies were coming in getting paid ridiculous amounts, and, you know, with guaranteed contracts in the NBA becomes an issue. So, but we can get into that. That's a whole other separate discussion. But let, let, let's get into draft proposal, right? So I've, and, and I've had some a lot of conversations around this. I had some conversations with Sloan that wound up as, as hoop ideas on ESPN. But what I'd like to see, right, and, and, and I, I've been an advocate of this, is I'd like to have something where, like, each team is assigned a, a kind of a draft budget or um, or a draft ping-pong balls or a, a kind of a, a set of money they can spend on a draft. And basically you treat the draft almost like an auction draft. So let's say I'm San Antonio, right, for example, and let's say I get something like 300 draft dollars every you know 10 years or so right and you know I can 
I can gain more money depending on my finishing record and you move it up, and then I can decide how much money I want to spend on a draft every year. So I can say, look, next year I want the no- I want to I want to go for number one pick, so I'm going to put in I don't know 200 draft dollars into the draft, and that means I get a draft. Now there's a couple ways to do it. I can do it before the draft and say how many ping pong balls or money I'm going to spend. Still have the lottery and like you know just basically you're buying lottery tickets to do that, so you get a better chance. Another way to do it, and I, and I kind of like this one, is to have some sort of auction draft on TV where each team is basically bidding on the player's services when the draft comes up. And they can spend as much or as little draft money as they want on these players. Kind of like you would do professional football auction draft. Now, this would, I think, make for fascinating television. I think the other thing that would be really interesting in such a scenario is, like, I think I'd also kind of tie that into kind of rookie scale and say, look, you know, you're going to spend this much money on rookies, and you can spend it and allocate it as much as you want. So if this year, you know, if you're gonna, you have $8 million to spend on rookies, Right, maybe this year you spend seven and one, or maybe next year you spend four and four. Maybe the year after that you don't spend any money. So teams can build up how much money they spend and can adjust that. I think I'd go that way and make it a lot more flexible, you know, and they can trade draft credits and whatnot. But again, at the end of the day, you make it so that being a terrible team doesn't automatically guarantee you having a, a good draft pick, and also kind of takes away the incentive for losing because again, you another team who's good, you know they can come in with that draft credit and actually have a chance getting a good draft pick. One caveat on this is people understand. It's like I'm assuming that everybody gets a flat rate. So everybody gets kind of the same amount for a certain period, and then there's a fixed amount, and then there's a variable amount depending on how bad your team is, right? And I think the other thing that has to happen, and I think there was a great piece on this, which is if there is a conference that is better than another conference so that you have teams that are good but are not quite good enough to get into the playoffs, but they're way better than the bad teams in the other conference, given the fact that they're getting lottery picks, they're going to keep getting better and getting better or staying better. So and this was specifically on basically the Western Conference has gotten, given their records, got, they've gotten more draft, let's call it draft capital to spend over the last 10 years. And so that's kind of made the, uh, the kind of the inequity between the two conferences worse. So actually the draft, the way it's actually built, and the playoff seating, the way it's actually built, actually adds to the inequity in the league and makes you know, will tend to make if there's, as I said, if there's one conference that's less competitive than the other, it'll take to make that discrepancy even greater over time. And an interesting point, in addition to the one, I believe his name was Curtis, he wrote it for ESPN about yeah. that, is that that it works in the way that he said in terms of, you know, good teams that miss the playoffs in the Western Conference, but it also has the additional factor of that those teams' records are in the West are a little bit deflated because they play more games against the Western Conference. So that disproportionately affects their draft stock as well because when you think about the let's say the Clippers and the Thunder and the Spurs compared to the the Heat and the Pacers they are playing a larger portion of their games against better teams so on the margins let's say that two to three games impact them one to two games that can shift draft stock a couple of picks as well on at each level so not only do you have the playoff non-playoff but you have it within each group just by playing stronger opponents. The other argument to keep in mind is the fact that having a high draft pick is no guarantee of actually getting talent. In fact, it's more like a 50-50 shot. Teams that are badly run are bad at identifying talent. If you're the Cleveland Cavaliers, and sorry Cavaliers fans, but this is kind of the truth, and you're bad at identifying talent in the draft, then getting the number one draft pick twice is not really going to help you, right? Because they're still going to go out and draft some terrible players, and you know, over time, even though they've, you know, basically they've got all this draft capital to spend, and they haven't spent it wisely. I think, I mean, there's other proposals that I like. I mean, I like, as I said, I like the idea of basically, you know, assigning 
ping pong balls to each team and then kind of having them trade as they want and then having teams spend it as they want so you don't have to, like, if it's a crappy year, I say, look, I'm only spending one ping pong ball. But I also like the idea, I think uh, Cuban actually put this out there, which is say, look, the, the two worst teams or three worst teams in the league are maybe locked into, like, maybe the five, six, seven slot. And then it actually goes the other way. So basically you get more ping pong balls for being more competitive. So in that scenario, then you lock the three worst teams in the league in those middle slots, five, six, seven, and then everybody else. So the team, the first, the best team with the best record was out of the playoffs gets the most ping pong balls. It's kind of a bit counterintuitive in the sense that like, oh, no, but you're getting a good team who's getting a player. But again, you're getting a team that's going to have an incentive to compete, right? So they're going to have a chance to compete. They're going to have an incentive. And it kind of, you know, makes for a more exciting end of season, right? So these teams are going to want to play. And then you're going to have all these teams. You'd be thinking about, you know, maybe Denver, you know, in that scenario, somebody like Denver could be looking at that. Somebody like Denver, Memphis, uh, anybody who's actually Dallas, teams that are just out of the playoffs, right, could, you know, could be getting an, an, an influx of talent. And they're getting rewarded for playing well, right? So, which is at the end of the day kind of what you want. Fewer designing system, would you allow a team to decline a playoff spot for a better chance of winning the lottery? Uh, you know, I would say probably not, honestly. And I think that, you know, there, there has to be some thought given around to what you do, which is, again, this is why I kind of think credits is better. As I said, you know, theoretically, everybody gets 30 ping pong balls every five years, and then we give you additional ping pong balls to spend based on your fin- on your finish. So, you know, the worst team gets another 30, and then, like, or, or maybe something like 60 ping pong balls for everybody, and then... 30 for whoever finishes worse and one for whoever finishes with the best record and you can spend them as well and you can buy and sell them. I think that's the way I would probably do it as opposed to doing it the other way because the other one kind of, the other systems all kind of, you lend themselves to having these gray areas which, which you can exploit. This one is more like, you know, you know, if you're smart, you know, you have a certain a certain fixed amount of capital you can spend, you can buy that, you can trade for that and, you know, you can, you can use it to get better. Now, teams that are bad are still going to be bad but I think, you know, then again, the teams that are good are going to have an opportunity to improve over time. That makes total sense. Are there any other draft-related things that you feel need that should be a part of the discussion that haven't come through so far? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that, that that's interesting is is I would maybe think about the possibility of somewhat shorter contracts. I think one of the things, if we want to really make it more competitive, then I think it you, you have to have more player motion, not less, right? So... I mean, teams do want to be able to lock in certain players, but, you know, if you if you draft somebody and they're not any good, right, then you should have the ability to kind of move that on. Or, again, I think we were arguing this beforehand. I think what makes the NFL more competitive, we're arguing about what makes the NFL competitive, is the fact that they have a lot. They, they make it really hard for you to keep your roster together, right? So because you have things that are built in that make things kind of get a premium, so good players get paid and they move on to different teams. And that makes everything more balanced. And that's if that is your end goal, then that's what you want to be looking for. One idea Ethan Sherwood-Strauss and I have talked about, which I think is really interesting, is the idea that kind of paralleling, in a way, second-round picks, that if you want to sign a guy for a longer period of time, then the, the trade-off is that he becomes unrestricted when he becomes off that contract. And you could do that on a year limit. You could do that in a series of different ways. You could do it with option years or however you want to do it. And But there, that's a really interesting Part of the component of it is that is the idea that these guys are controlled, if you want to say, you know, think of Kyrie Irving or whoever, that they're controlled for effectively a minimum of seven years, but really closer to nine. That that is an interesting factor in the whole thing. I've argued it, treating it like a draft, 
and I've argued the possibility of tying that, like treating it as an auction draft, and, try, and tying whatever money you're spent. So if you go and open bid, and let's say you know Embiid's the number one pick next year, and you know somebody ends up playing and saying, look, I'm willing to pay him like a hundred draft, like I'm gonna willing to spend a hundred pingo balls on him or a hundred draft credits on him. Well, that means you're gonna have to pay him like ten million dollars a year, twelve million dollars a year, and tie that to actual salary, and then kind of you you have less salary to spend other years. But then again, you'd have to have a system where, like, you can kind of release the player if that doesn't happen, or maybe you can go to a rebid, or, you know, there are things you should be able to do, right? So I think it's, again, the trick is, can you get the players to play ball with it? I think what's interesting is, and this is kind of an open secret, which is, you know, rookies have no power, generally, in the CBA. So the vets are the ones who are controlling. So as long as the vets actually end up making more money, they're probably going to be willing to screw the rookies. So there's some flexibility that owners have. And again, you know, I, I would just really want to see a live television auction draft with James Dolan and uh, some of the other owners out there. I think it would just be incredibly fascinating television. It would be really fun to watch. So let's move on to what you would like to do as your big solution for the playoff system. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a couple things that you can actually do. One of the things I've, I've, I've argued for is basically eliminating the conferences. We'll forget the playoffs. The 16 best teams should get in. I've also argued for, and I, and I kind of like this, which, I mean, I think the simplest one is just basically just reseed once you get to the playoffs. But then you actually kind of get into the conversation where, well, do we really need to play the kind of unbalanced schedule that we play right now, or can we go to a more balanced schedule and say, look, we're, we've got 30 teams. We can just everybody play the other 29 teams. And then just kind of figure out a schedule where, like, maybe you play your, comp, your division a little more, but you play everybody else the same number of games, and you might wind up with slightly less games. That's, that's one solution. I think the other solution I propose, which I, I really like this one, which is, look, we play a three-game series over the week after the end of the regular season. If the conferences are unbalanced, and say, for example, you have four Western teams that are out of the playoffs, would be 9, 10, 11, and 12, the 9, 10, 11, and 12 seed, who have a better record than the bottom four teams in the East, or the, the bottom four playoff teams in the East, they get to play each other for uh, a playing series, much like the uh, NCAA does. So let's say, for example, I think the ninth seed right now for the, let's argue and say the ninth seed for the West could be somebody like Memphis, right? So Memphis would end up playing the 12th seed, sorry, or the eighth seed in the East, who could be somebody like, oh, I don't know, the Knicks. You got Memphis and the Knicks playing in the first round. Right, or Memphis and, let's say, somebody else, the Wizards, right? And you have a three-game series being played in the first round. Now, the team that actually had the playoff spot would probably get home. I would give them home court. So you'd probably play over, like, the, that three-game series over that week, first week between the end of the regular season and the first round of the playoffs, and you would have them play the first game in the Eastern Conference Arena and then second game in the Western Conference Arena and the third game in the Eastern Conference Arena. And whoever won would actually get the playoff spot. Now, an argument could be made in that situation that, given that it's a play-in game, you know, maybe the, there's some there's some uh, some draft picks at stake, or maybe some uh, some ping pong balls at stake. But I think it actually would make some some great compelling television. I mean, if if, if you did that, if, if you did that, one, it's more playoff games, so the league should be happy. And two, you get better teams in. Now, once you get them in, I think what's interesting then is 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 kind of. Do you recede or do you kind of throw them in, give them the slot? I favor kind of give them the slot. So, so let's say in that in that scenario, I said Memphis was the ninth seed in the West and Europe was the eighth. So that means Memphis would end up playing Indiana in round one. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Uh, do you have any other any other stuff on that that you want to share with the podcast listeners? 
Yeah, I think the the other thing, and we talked about this a little bit, and this is another conversation. Somebody actually suggested this, which is the idea of relegation or having two tiers in the NBA. And in that scenario, what you'd be talking about is having the top 12 teams in the league would be kind of the top division, and then everybody else would be kind of a second tier. And this is actually really, uh, the person who was there, this is really interesting. What happened is, basically, once you make the playoffs, you're in a top tier, and these are the guys who are playing the national TV games. The second tier are the guys who are drafting players. And the top four of that bottom division play the bottom four of that top division for the final playoff spot every year. And the same kind of one-week scenario where, you know, we have relegation playoffs, and the guys who lose get relegated to, like, let's call it the NBA B-League. The top tier plays in the top. And, and then what that guarantees from the point of view of the league is that, you know, the, you have better matchups and better quality of teams playing on these national games. I think where it kind of gets a little interesting is there is some profit loss to the teams that, that suck, you know, so, so, so sucking is, is a problem. Now, I don't think that's a very realistic scenario given the way the NBA is built. It would be really shocking the North American sports franchise owners for that to happen. But, I mean, actually, I think it would make for fascinating TV. I, I, again, I, I have my questions whether that could actually be made to work in the U.S. I think something more like with a playing series is more interesting. I do think somehow, long term, there needs to be some thought around how do we get terrible teams not to be terrible, right? So what can we do long term to give these teams the ability to improve themselves and, and not remain terrible over time? That's really interesting, and there's there are a lot of big solutions in that that I'd love to tackle at another time. I have some unusual ideas on that. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great. I really wanted to have you on because you're one of the people who helped inspire me to put this all together. So thank you so much, and and love to talk to you again soon. It was great. You know, it's, it's fun to be on, uh, on the podcast. Thanks again to Arturo for coming on. You can read him at boxscoregeeks.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Arturo Galletti. That's A-R-T-U-R-O-G-A-L-L-E-T-T-I. Next up is Jonathan Charks of Real GM. Our conversation's a little bit shorter. runs about four minutes. Hope you enjoy it. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem, man. If you could control the system that new players come into the league, because it doesn't have to be a draft, though obviously it can be, what would your ideal system look like? Basically, I like the uh, Premier League. I would have it completely deregulated. I would let as many franchises compete as wanted to compete, and I let them sign whoever they want to sign and whoever they want to sign them. I let, let the market decide as far as I'm concerned. And so, if you went with that kind of system, would that mean that you would want to eliminate the age limit, move it to a different place, or what, what in those lines? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the age limit, because I think what happens with the age limit is we create a system where the only people who have any money invested in the system, in terms of youth basketball, are the shoe companies like Nike and Reebok and Adidas. And they're the ones who end up developing young players, which is freaking insane. So I say no age limit. If the San Antonio Spurs want to find the best 12-year-old player, let them sign them. I don't care. And then do you have an idea of how that would factor in in terms of roster limits or anything like that, or would it be in a way paralleling the Premier League again where you can have a developmental team or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think you would still want a roster limit on your major league roster, like 12 or 15. But, yeah, then you would just have development teams, however many you wanted, basically. And then so those would be administered, and that could be, I guess you could call that the D-League, or if the teams wanted to associate it differently, would that be fine as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the D-League would be a very small thing. I would like it to be like the Major League Baseball, where they have what? Every team has four teams or five teams. I always forget. But either way, an A, double A, triple A, rookie ball, whatever. And then do that. And then, But unlike baseball, there would be no draft system whatsoever, correct? 
No, no, no drafting. I don't, I don't believe in drafting. This is America. Let let the let the labor boy want where they want to work, man. I'm not a fan of this communist kind of stuff. Any other insights that in terms of the process that you'd like to impart to everybody? Well, I just think it's the best way to do it. Free market. The main problem with New York right now is the Knicks are poorly run, but New York basketball fans got nowhere else to go but the Nets, who are also kind of poorly run. So, like, you know, put six teams there and let the best-run team get all the fans. That's not works everywhere else in, in, the, in the world. Why should we that here in sports? It doesn't make any sense. You don't want to let these owners get too complacent. Make them worry. Make them compete. Don't let them just sit in the cut all day and make cash to do nothing. Then they have no incentive to get better. They can just make money either way. And it could eventually create a system with promotion and relegation, which I know a lot of people like. I think definitely. I think... It's really unfair that there can only be 30 NBA teams. I mean, the NBA should be like Starbucks at every corner. We should have a team in every city in this country. Why, why not? That's where they make the most money. Like, why should there be not be a team in Sacramento, Louisville, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Austin? And yeah, they go up and down how well, how well they're run. That's the fairest way to do it. And there would be a lot more talent if you basically cut out the middleman and had a much, it'd be a much different college basketball and even high school basketball would be substantially different. I think what would, what would happen is you would take the money out of it and kids who wanted to go to college, it'd be like college baseball. There'd be some kids who said, you know, I want to have a backup in case this pro sports thing doesn't work. I'll go to college and they'll go to college. And the kids who want that money right away, they take the money right away, man. That's the best way to do it. Make everyone, yeah, give everybody the choice. Yeah, I, there's there's definitely definitely a rationale there. Uh, well, thank you, thanks for taking the time. Loved having you on. Yeah, sure. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for coming on. You can read him at Real GM. Finally, in terms of guests, we have Ethan Sherwood Strauss of ESPN. He and I talked for about 23 minutes, and he also wanted to talk about the legacy of David Stern, and that's an interesting discussion. And I was really happy to have it with him. Thanks so much for coming on. I love being on. How you doing? Doing well. So I'm doing a special podcast of just what people think would be the best solutions to fix or tweak, however you want to phrase it, the draft and the playoffs. But let's start with the draft. I've always been simplistic when it comes to the draft. I, I just return to the old waiting. Just wait it differently. Wait it near even. Maybe provide a better incentive for making the playoffs so teams don't tank out of the playoffs if there's some great prospects, uh, perhaps some more money. It's easy for me to say some more money without knowing the amount, but that would be cool by me if you got a little bit more money as a team or maybe more salary cap room, which could exacerbate certain inequalities between teams. I'm just throwing that out there for making the playoffs so no team tries to miss the playoffs. Then everybody else, it's totally even. And so what? So what if we have an Orlando situation again and Penny Hardaway and Shaq team up together? It's funny that that was cited as something awful that should never happen again. That was awesome. That should happen again. I'm, I'm totally down with that. I think what's worse is that these middling teams just stay middling with no real hope, and other teams try to get awful in pursuit of that great draft pick. That's the situation that should be fixed and avoided. Agreed. As somebody who's kind of a structuralist, I think that you look at the rules of the game and you see how those dictate behavior, and what we've seen is that the current system clearly has a benefit that teams are seeing in terms of losing games and understanding, as I've phrased it before, the timetable of contention in terms of, so if we're a little ways away, we might as well be really bad. And while I'm okay with that in certain circumstances, if you're figuring out what you have or something like that, 
in other circumstances, it's just nasty for the league. Yeah, it's bad. And there's this denial that it's a problem that frustrates me because let's posit that all these teams are trying, which I don't believe. Let's just posit that. Even though you have all these teams trying, I don't like that as a fan it screws you up and you don't know what you should root for. We should at least afford the fans a clarity of rooting interest. If you like a team, you should know whether or not you want them to win or lose a game. It's a screwy situation to have them do otherwise. And I know certain situations exist like it in the NFL with the suck for luck or what have you, but it's a bit different when you're forcing fans to go through this seemingly endless slog of 82 games of that mentality. I don't like it at all. I want it obviated. Obviated, damn it. And that's the big difference, I think, between the NFL and the other sports is that there are only 16 games. So even though teams might know that they're bad early on, there isn't as much, as you said, of the slog. In basketball, you can see that for 20 games. And that gets into my next question, which is how would you handle or would you affect at all the ability to protect draft picks? Yes, I just think it should be done away with. I know Amin El-Hassan uh, made a face when I suggested as much because it's somewhat the uh, the oil, the grease that gets these trades through, these pick protections, but it creates such a nasty incentive because it's a more predictable outcome with these draft protections where we don't know that you're going to get the top pick if it's top three per se. We, we don't know. But once you once you get higher in the draft order, it becomes more predictable. The higher the pick, the more predictable it is. So if you're the eighth worst team, you're pretty much assured that you're getting the eighth pick. So if that's your pick protection, if you know that you're losing your pick, if you're something you know lower than or you should lower and higher is hard with the uh, with the draft. If you have a pick that's eight instead of nine, you know that you're keeping that pick, then it makes your incentive and it makes your goal really super obvious. And so the tanking is almost worse for those pick protection situations. So I, I would totally do away with it. Uh, why why put that there? What's the real counter argument? I think that Amin probably has the best counter argument, which is that it makes trades easier to do. But I think you can do that other ways. And you and I both covered what can be described as maybe the most egregious yep. of what I would call tanking. Because I would separate that from just kind of slow building your team like the Magic and the Sixers have done. But when we covered the 2012 Warriors, let's say the 2012 because that was the part of the year that mattered, when they knew what pick they had to get to once their guarantee of the playoffs fell apart and they knew where they needed to get to to get Harrison Barnes. And strangely enough, players start getting elective surgeries and things like that. And that totally screws with the league in a larger sense. Yeah, it was funny because after that, people are saying Steph Curry, I don't know about him, injury prone. And that's true to a certain degree, but they're citing the season that he missed. And I'm thinking, do we really know he missed that season? <laughs> do we really know that was the reason? Because I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure he needed to miss all those games. It was terrible to be around. And it, it gives you a perspective on why that shouldn't be that some people and some fan bases do not have. I remember a lot of the people at the time who were arguing against tanking as a problem were eh, Laker fans and Lakers Twitter. And now they're not so inclined to feel that way. Suddenly they see why it sucks. It sucks. It's not good. It's especially bad up close where you see this poor coach who wants to do his best and wants to win. And there are these swirling incentives around him that are begging him not to and not to try to save his job and not to look like a good coach. It's not great to have that ambivalence in your sport and it's just silly that it persists when it can be fixed it's ridiculous 
And I think more than anything, it's hard on the fans. And we talked about that Warriors team is that that was a team that new, relatively new owner Joe Lacob guaranteed were going to make the playoffs. And they went from that and fan expectations, whether or not those were justified at the time, to missing the playoffs and then just making the team basically unwatchable. And I think we saw a little bit of that with the Blazers, too, last year. And that worked as well. Yeah. No, the, the teams are both smart for doing it. And that's the problem. People go, there's some sort of misunderstanding. When you say that this shouldn't exist as an incentive structure, people start arguing for why teams are doing it. Totally, totally not grasping what we're saying here. When I go, I don't like that the Warriors had to tank for this draft pick and it created a bad situation, the response is, well, it was good for them. Why are you hating? Like, No, they shouldn't have had to do this indignity to get what they wanted. That's the problem. The problem is the incentive structures makes teams humiliate themselves in pursuit of better ends. That's that's stupid. And in the case of the Warriors, well, it sort of worked. Harrison Barnes might be a topic for another day, but getting the seventh pick was a reward for that awful, awful tanking slog. In terms of a more philosophical point, do you think personally that the draft should be a mechanism by which the league is balanced competitively, or do you kind of see that as something that's not as big of a deal? It almost has to be just because draft picks matter so much that it can balance the competitiveness. I guess I've never understood why, from a league health perspective, there needs to be such a balance. I don't think there needs to be. I just think that the owners all want there to be because there are more have-not owners than haves. And then we conflate that as what's good for the league, but it's not. It's just what these particular owners want. What's good for the league is stars in big markets and big market teams winning a bunch of games and getting a bunch of national attention. That's what's good for the league. That's what would make these owners as an aggregate the most money. They just haven't worked it out among themselves to share that money properly, so they're not incentivized to do what's best for the league as a whole. And the other interesting ideological incongruence with that is the idea of individual max contracts, is that that is something that in some ways goes against the idea of competitive balance, you know, that LeBron was turning down like $2 million per year to go to the Heat and then long-term money because of the way it's calculated instead of $15 million or $20 million or something more like that. And if you really wanted balance, you do that, but they're really more about saving money in that circumstance than balance. It seems as though a lot of what fuels this is the owners or certain owners feeling humiliated and feeling resentful and wanting to have a degree of control over people they can't really control. It's like they're gripping water. The fact is that these stars are huge, and they command a massive amount of attention, and they're more famous than the owners who are trying to control them, this select group of people like LeBron James, and there's not a whole lot that can be done about it, no matter what you legislate. So, yeah, they they don't like how these stars can force them to pay a huge contract, so they give them a cap on the contract. That gives them more leverage in terms of where they want to go, because... A, a different place can't pay them more. So then it's all just about their choice and which place seems proper and which place seems cool. And then the owner has to grovel for them to stay. So a lot of this seems to be fueled by the owner wanting to control the athlete. That's why we have a system in place where rookies are with the same team for seven years, which is stupid, which is just absolutely terrible for the sport and people remaining interested in the sport, in my opinion, because it creates a stagnation and it locks certain talented players in bad situations because these are usually the worst teams that are drafting the best players. So you aren't getting the best out of the talents of these players, and you're not getting the hot stove action that fuels so much of uh, the readership of the NBA 
And, uh, you know, they, they, most websites, most NBA websites, they do better in July than they do during the season. People like that movement. It's stagnant because of this rule. And so it's bad. It's, again, counterproductive as far as the aggregate interest and profitability of the league. But owners have their own motivations. Agreed. And one idea that you and I have talked about abstractly on the podcast before, but I've actually thought of a more specific proposal in kind of creating this podcast is to move to a system with first round picks that parallels second round picks, which is if for the people who know the Chandler Parsons situation, the way that it works generally for non first round oh, agents is that so hard is that if in, for non first round free agents, if you are co if you become a free agent before you have completed four or part of four years you're a restricted free agent but if you have four years then you're unrestricted and what i've thought of would be a, a fair solution if you're going to keep a draft system is that you have the exact same thing with restricted free agents with option years but what the team has to do is that if they pick up that fourth year then that player is an unrestricted free agent and so what that does is it gives the team an incentive to figure out what they're doing but it also gives the player an out if they want if they get another year under market I like that. That's a good compromise that's well thought through. I haven't really thought much about how to fix it and how to make something more equitable and also fair to, to both parties. I, I've always loved the Kevin Arnovitz draft auction. I, I, I've loved that idea for some time. I know they would never, they would probably never do that. It's funny, these guys, these guys, man, they're all about being self-made billionaires and self-made millionaires multi-millionaires because they were so great because they are the wittiest they are the cleverest they are uh, the people who have the best ambition and yet they contrive a system where you essentially win by dumb blind luck where a ping pong ball bounces a certain way and you get that superstar for seven years it's a curious dynamic it is let's move on to the playoffs what changes if any would you make to the current system well, I would do away with conferences. I just want best 16 teams. This conference thing has just outlived its usefulness if it ever was useful. This is not the NFL. I feel as though so many NBA problems can be reduced to telling them this is not the NFL. You don't have a great sense of tradition. You don't have these divisions that matter. So why are you pretending like you do? They matter They matter nothing to people. Nothing at all. This is the league for people that don't care about tradition. This is the new. That's what the NBA represents. The new and the young. It's not about that. So... Stop screwing things up uh, with the situation where one bad conference is going to send a bunch of mediocre teams to the playoffs and the good conference is going to take some good teams and have them out of the postseason. That's that, that just shouldn't be and it should be done away with. Of course, divisions done away with first because that's even more ridiculous then conferences. I also believe that there should be fewer games in the playoffs. I think going to a five-game system instead of a seven-game series would be more entertaining. It would be less fair, but let's face it, people are entertained by unfairness. That's why they love the NCAA tournament. They don't love it because it's fair. They love it because it's unfair, because the great team can lose and it's not so predictable. I still believe that the best team will win a vast majority of the five-game series, but just injecting some unpredictability and shaving off some of those games to not make it feel like such a slog, as we keep saying, the word slog, doing that would improve the entertainment of the product. The other interesting thing about the conferences, and your point is well taken, is that they aren't geographically accurate and they haven't been necessarily consistent. You know, you think about that New Orleans is in the West, Memphis is in the West, and a series of other teams are in the East, whereas the NFL, if we're going to compare it again to the NFL and baseball, they have their conferences where each conference has geographic variability, 
So the idea of it being based on travel seems really antiquated now, but seems even more ridiculous when you compare it to other leagues. Yeah, we have that problem where there are more people living on the east than in the west, and that used the map. And it, it makes a lie of uh, these divisions, and it makes it quite arbitrary when New Orleans can be in the West. In what sense is New Orleans in the West? <laughs> can, explain that one to me. It, it can't really be explained. And, I mean, if they had, incidentally, if they had been the team to move to Oklahoma City, that would have been interesting. And also, if you want to think about it this way, as sad as I am that there isn't a team in Seattle, there are five teams and states on the Pacific Ocean, and yet the Pacific Division includes Phoenix and not Portland. That's, and that makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense, and that, that brings us to another problem with the league. We keep talking about problems. Uh, man, I, I just think that this is the greatest sport in the world. It is beautiful. People are flying through the air. It's incredible. Incredible creativity, incredible star power, and I believe it underperforms because of structural, uh, I don't even know if it's negligence or what, things like this. Uh, th there's a lot of it that depress interest in the sport. But yeah, Seattle should have a team. That's one issue that you brought up related to this one. Not only do we have a dearth of teams out west, uh, we have one in particular that should be in a western city that's not. And to me, the other part of it that negatively impacts David Stern's legacy to such a strong point is that now that we've seen what happened, and obviously they've done well in Oklahoma City, and I'm, and the city has embraced the team, and that's wonderful. But not only did Seattle lose a team, Seattle lost a team to an owner who appears unwilling to pay the luxury tax and became, you could argue, the first owner in the history of the NBA to break up a potential championship team because he didn't want to spend money. And that's insane to me. He might be vindicated because they could win the title this year, and they've had it work out since. But yes, on the face of it, it's awful. It's awful. If you're moving a team from Seattle to Oklahoma City, as Kevin Draper has pointed out, a lot of what happened is that the league bet on the wrong thing. This is a penny-wise, pound-foolish league. Here's one example where they started shaking down these cities for a quick buck, for stadium money, you know? They, they didn't want to pay the full price on stadiums, so it was, we're going to leave if you don't give us the stadium money, and that became in vogue in a few different places, and so they also moved these teams to stadiums that were paid for, but they weren't in very populous cities. That was all well and good, except here's the problem. This huge boom in TV rights happened concurrently, and now the TV money dwarfs the stadium money, and that looks stupid because making a ton of money off TV rights in Seattle is a much better proposition than getting a stadium in Oklahoma City. So they've completely screwed themselves in that respect, and it's just indicative of uh, what's, what's messed up about the league. Do you think that the change from Stern to Silver could have a positive impact on some of the structural problems that you and I talk about? I'm pessimistic. Generally, when things like this happen, it's like in The Wire, it's a new day in Baltimore, except it's not. Maybe. I, I, I hope so. I, I can't claim to know. I do believe that the legacy of Stern is vastly overrated. That's not to say that he is free of of having done good things or that everything he did was bad. He certainly did some good things and was part of some success, but I believe so much of this is this cachet that comes with him being a good quote and a smart guy, and then people go, greatest commissioner ever, and I'm looking at the league and I'm thinking to myself, well, he took over. They were less profitable than baseball, less profitable than football, and all these years later, uh, yeah, they're that. They're still that. So what's this huge thing that we should be crediting him for? I'm not altogether certain. 
I think that he deserves credit for his role in the Dream Team and for growing the sport in that age and for making Europeans and let's say non-Americans because obviously Argentinians and, and they're Asian-born players and African-born players now. That's great. I think that what happened was there was this transition from when he was a very proactive, very good commissioner to becoming a more reactive yes. commissioner. And to me, the real mark of this, I was thinking about this when driving back from the Warriors game last night, was the dress code. Yeah. And I think that what he could have done, especially as you and I know, having been around the league for a while and all that, is that he could have gone out there and been in front of it and addressed it and said, hey, there's this reputation that our players are, if you want to use the Richard Sherman word, thugs, and they're not. And they could have gone into this beautiful argument about how the NBA is this culture and how we're welcoming of different people and these are intelligent, these are intelligent people. And instead, he basically confirms that unfair opinion or impression of the NBA by forcing this heavy-handed thing on them, and I think it just sent exactly the wrong message. I agree, although some would say that the dress code was a success. I, I do also agree that the Dream Team was a great thing he did. The rule changes were fantastic, so his legacy is not without some merit. It's not black and white. I just believe it's it's a mixed bag, and I don't understand the greatest commissioner ever it's so great people will say oh the finals were on tape delay before he took over and i would counter with and they got better ratings than the finals today <laughs> they got better ratings of course a lot of things got better ratings back then because there were fewer options but the nfl didn't have that problem their ratings are slightly better now than they were back in you know those times so i just feel as though there is this meteoric rise to the league that happened in the 90s and Sturm was part of that and that's why he rode this wave of goodwill because what a rise it was with jordan he was a huge factor but there was also this steep decline the steep fall off that the league has yet to recover from They've recovered a little bit. It's not as bad as it was in 2007 when they had the worst-rated finals, and there just wasn't a whole lot of interest in the league following the brawl at the Palace and all that business. But they're still not where they were, and there are all these other things like, I don't know, a referee gambling on, on the games and fixing them. There was that. That happened. That was an issue. There was the ugly Oklahoma City-Seattle situation that, that we mentioned, and there was also the matter of this greatest commissioner ever. Last time there was a lockout trotting out there and almost as a brag saying that the league had lost $400 million. I'm thinking to myself, how can, in one breath, people say, this is the greatest commissioner when he's saying that they're just drowning in debt and they're losing all this money in an age where sports are just ever more popular. That's an issue. I don't believe that he has necessarily presided over a league that's run itself well. I can't speak to the intricacies and how much of that is his fault. I'm just not that impressed with the results of the NBA since Jordan. The other part of it that I think is going to be a really early impact of Silver's legacy is if they can do a television deal that actually grows the NBA as opposed to just growing the monetary base. And what I'm thinking about is that the NBA is a sport that on network TV, which I think has the resonance of everything, there are so few games that make it so that it's not a part of that kind of communal sports experience that the NFL is, and even that baseball is. Baseball has Sunday, and if you know, you know that on Sundays, you're going to see those games. The NBA doesn't have that on any day. It's not even like Friday night when TV networks don't even know what to air. They could put NBA games, and then at least they would be getting exposure that way, and you get more eyeballs there than you ever get on the other networks. And to do a deal that understands that growing the brand is more important than anything else, and that will be, to me, the defining first moment of the Silver Era. Yeah, because it goes back to the penny-wise, pound-foolish thing that I keep saying, where squeezing out money from all these 82 games 
Pennywise, you're getting money from every game, except you're depressing interest in your sport, and you're not part of the water cooler conversation and the social media conversation that revolves around big events. So they should cut down on the riffraff and schedule their games in such a way that people know when the big NBA action is on. I always am referencing Kevin again. I've done it before. The Tuesday, Thursday thing would be really cool. And do that to try to capture the attention of the nation because, frankly, there's a lot of competition for people's attention spans. And there are a lot of different sports happening all at once. And you're not going to get that. You're not going to truly grow through some grainy league pass and a bunch of tanking teams. And I shouldn't have to tell my friends who are sports fans, but not as huge NBA fans, oh man, you should watch Damian Lillard, oh, you should watch Steph Curry, and then have to have them wait a couple years for them to happen to have a game on ESPN or ABC or TNT. They should be embracing all of the teams, particularly all the teams that are worth watching, early on, whether that be through flexing or be through actually having more diversity in terms of what teams are on the air, so that people are familiar with a guy's career growth as opposed to just finding them whenever the league decides that they're actually marketable when they were years before. Which is where we are with Anthony Davis. I I, yes. I, I want all the Anthony Davis I can get, and I can because I have League Pass, which isn't the best service, by the way, and that's something that we could have put on Stern as well, that part of the legacy too, it's this kind of unworkable broadband and league pass system and yet he's not getting that national publicity and national exposure befitting of a star to be agreed i'd put drummond in that category i'd put john wall in that category and the, to me the most egregious with that was durant's first couple years he was an incredible player long before everybody started talking about him, and it took the Thunder basically making the finals for that to really happen. Yeah, it did, and we saw that with Curry in a major way where it was a little bit different just because Curry hadn't been healthy, but it was funny to get a true sense of the gulf between what we knew about locally and what the the country knew about nationally uh, once the playoffs happened because suddenly people were going, can Curry continue this hot streak? This is crazy. It's unsustainable in the playoffs, and I'm thinking... He's shooting how he shoots. <laughs> this is, this has been happening for a season. Where have you guys been? But, you know, until they have that big moment on the national stage, they are under wraps to a vast majority of the audience, if not the NBA audience. Agree completely. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Happy to gas bag when called upon, Danny. Have a great day. You too. Thanks to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for coming on. You can read him at ESPN, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Sherwood-Strauss. That's S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. I wanted to conclude this podcast with some of my own thoughts on the issues, because I definitely do have them. And I want to start with the draft, or more accurately, bringing players into the league. And there are two basic approaches that I support. One is more realistic, the second one is more idealistic utopian, if you want to call it that. And I want to start there. To me, the best idea in terms of the long-term success of the league is to abolish the draft entirely and treat all new players coming in under the current CBA just as free agents. And to me, that works well because the CBA as presently constructed does a really good job in terms of limiting a lot of the flaws that we saw under previous systems, why it didn't work the first time. Nate Duncan talked about how Glenn Robinson got a 10-year contract. Those aren't allowed anymore. Also, the salary cap and the hard cap and the luxury tax make it so that it would be very hard for the high-end teams to add a truly high-level player, and if a guy wanted to make that decision, at least he'd be doing it on his own terms. 
And I would also add in one exception to that of giving teams an actual salary cap exception in the denomination of their pick hold, if you want to think about it that way, that they would have under the current system. So what that means is, let's say you have the Sacramento Kings, hypothetically, that were eligible for the sixth pick, and they have no salary cap space. They would still get an exemption that they could only use on first-year players that would give them an ability to fill that. Now, could they get the same player now for that price that they could have gotten before who knows but at least they'll still have the option to add a first year player or more than one like the mid-level it could be split into multiple players the big argument for me in terms of that is that you could bring it together with a reduction of the age limit to what it previously was or what i support an elimination of the age limit entirely while still maintaining a similar form in terms of roster spots and everything like that. I don't like the idea of a minor leagues because I think of it as a stockpile. But I do believe that the NBA is the best place to develop elite basketball talent in the United States. You can make an argument that there are other places around the world, and when you look at the all-round game of players like Marc Gasol, it's hard to argue that the U.S. really does that when you look at the big men in particular. But it also serves the goal of having fewer players fall through the cracks, which I think is really important. And as somebody who's followed the draft and followed college for a long time, I think of a player like Renardo Sidney, who washed out in college before he even got the chance to make money as a pro player or got access to coaching and mental support and everything of people who are dedicated to making you the best professional that you can be. And I think that in every field, honestly, that you can do that, it's a really good solution. And the NBA should embrace that wholeheartedly. And if that leads to a reduction in their competitor of the NCAA in college basketball, all better for it. And I agree with what Jonathan Chark said, that high school development has become sidetracked by Nike, Adidas, all the other shoe companies, and AAU. And they're not really looking out for the player's best interest in terms of their long-term development. And we're learning with players like Giannis Antetokounmpo, and other young guys that the NBA can do a good job of developing, and I think Dwight Howard's another example there. So we can lean on that and use that to do the best job of developing players. Also, it resolves all these weird issues with non-American players and buyouts, or even American players who go overseas and not having full negotiations even after they've spent time abroad. I really don't like that. I don't think it's a fair system. My second proposal keeps the draft system, and I think that makes it a lot more realistic because it keeps slots and it keeps veterans happy because they'll keep their same proportion. But what would be different for me is that each team would get 10 ping pong balls per season, but it would be in a five season block. And so functionally what that means is that each team gets 50 ping pong balls to use, trade, do whatever they want. Now, each team in every draft has to maintain at least one to keep that chance, but they can use as many as they want. And as I said, it's not a rolling total. It's a five-year fixed term, and then it stops. The five-year term also allows for more easy contraction or expansion, depending on what the league needs, because then you can just figure out where in the year they are and they'll never get too far ahead or behind and also you could contract when you're trading ping pong balls or trading picks and protections involved in all of that you can deal with that and you can contract that so you could say i'm trading you my pick and i promise that i will put at least five ping pong balls in the till and then the way that it work is you pick the first team out of the till whatever ball comes up they get the number one pick pick up the next one and the next one that comes out for a new team they get the two pick until every team has gone 
And so then teams can make their own tactical decisions of how many they want to put in. So if there's a draft that they really like, they could put in 20. If there's a draft that they don't like as much, they could put in three. And I would do all of that blind. I would say that each team submits a number to the league office, and then the league office releases all of that, let's say, on the day of the full lottery. It would be amazing television. It would lead to an absolute avalanche of columns. And then the other tweak in this, and Ethan Sherwood-Strauss and I talked about this, is that I would do a modification on first-round rookie contracts, which is that you make it so that if the team declines the team option for the fourth year, the player is a restricted free agent and the current restriction that they can only be paid what they would have been in the fourth option year is removed. But if the team picks up that fourth option year, then they become an unrestricted free agent. So then you could argue that it becomes a system where they ju- you just take one year off the calendar or in certain circumstances, they could be unrestricted and end up re-signing with the same team just without that curbed market and all the awkward dynamics that come from restricted free agency. Also, this idea allows for something that I wrote for Real GM years ago of doing a tournament for the number one pick among all of the teams that do not make the playoffs. And how this would work is... Under the current system, there are 14 teams that don't make the playoffs. So you would seed it with the worst team being the first seed and actually getting a bye. And then you have the better records fight it out. And then whatever team wins that tournament, the players get a heap of money because of all the television rights. And the winning team gets the number one pick. You could say that then they don't have to use any ping pong balls. And then they get that benefit and they don't have to worry about that. I think that would be an incredibly fun way to do it. I don't think it runs against the other ideas because it guarantees that it will be a non-playoff team that gets the number one pick. It also would be monstrous for television ratings and would be super exciting. In terms of the playoffs, my solutions are a little bit less radical. I think that the core concepts need to be that the best teams make the playoffs, that the teams that do well in the regular season get properly rewarded, and that the system in general rewards the teams that do the best, more specifically than just the top teams, everybody. And how I would do that is, first of all, eliminate conferences, eliminate divisions, in the sense that it would be the best 16 teams. I don't care where they come from. You do 1 to 16. And what makes my system really different is that you take the teams and you order them from 1 to 16. By record, straight up, tiebreaker can be strength of schedules. The first tiebreaker you can do head-to-head doesn't really make a big difference. Anyway, you rank the teams. So you make 1 to 8 kind of a top group and 9 to 16 a second group. And how you work it is that you give the first team the option of choosing any team they want from 9 to 16. So if you run into a situation where Gilbert Arenas and Anton Jameson are hurt like they were for the Wizards, but I believe they were the 6th seed, so the 3 got that benefit, I think that the number one overall team should choose who they want. Also, it would lead to gigantic amounts of animosity which I think would be great. And people talk about the drama with the Heat and the Pacers. Can you imagine how much drama there would be if a team chose another team early and Bill Simmons likes to talk about the nobody believed in us? You would never have a better argument for nobody believed in us than being the first pick in any round. And that's the other part of this is that I would do that reseeding every round. So if a team survives despite an injury, then that's just unfortunate if they were too low. If they're high enough, then they're protected from that. So I would do that each round. Also, because of making that power and authority, I would switch the first round to a five-game series because if you're picking your own opponent and you lose, it's your own fault. So that's how I would do that system. I think that it's a lot more fair. I think that it would be a lot more interesting. And it also properly incentivizes winning because not only would you want to be as strong as possible in the first eight, But you would not want those top teams to pick you as long as those were the teams in general order that were the most dangerous. It's a really interesting system. I think that it would work incredibly well. So I'd like to end by thanking all of my guests, Zach Harper, Nate Duncan, Arturo Goletti, Jonathan Charks, and Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. 
it was a really fun discussion. I like that everyone went in a different direction. And while we have a lot of the same background and a lot of the same arguments came up, everybody had their own take and everybody was well justified and had a strong opinion. And all these people have thought about this a lot. And I think that shines through in each conversation. I'd also like to thank you for listening. This was an incredibly fun one to do. And I did get support both from Real GM and from guests when I mentioned the idea and there were other people who were interested in coming on but situations did not permit it hopefully I'll have them on and hopefully we'll keep on discussing this in the future and I really wanted to conclude this on the optimism that having a new commissioner especially one that seems more open just because of when he has risen to power let's say that we can talk about these things and actually have some of them fall on ears that are willing to listen and that are willing to do what is best for the league because really when we have these discussions and whether it be Ethan and I talking about NBA television rights or whether it be Nate and I talking about various things we're all doing it with the best interests of the league at heart all of the people on this have taken the time and we we take a lot of our energy to think about write about and discuss this league we we love it we love talking about it and we want to make it better and i want to hear the ways that you want to make it better so you can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com you can also hit me up on twitter at danny larue that's d-a-n-n-y-l-e-r-o-u-x if you want to give me a fully fledged proposal and i think that it's at that place then i'll either read it on the air or if you want to come on i can make you a guest for a short segment be really fun to have that and thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your continual support. Any insight you have to make the show better is much appreciated. Thanks again. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift for a 